Oh yeah. Give the mic any credit. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> I is my math right? If there's three point six million people born in the U.S. every year. Are you telling me two percent of people fucking die from fentanyl overdose of the bur- of that's like the, the that those are your chances? It's a hundred. It's a hundred thousand a year now. We're at. So, oh, would that be point five? Maybe. What is? Ten percent uh, uh, t- 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 of ten uh, percent of a million is is a hundred thousand, right? Right. So if it's three point two. So if it's three point six million, it's it's like two two percent, isn't it? No, is my math bad? Yeah, I think so. I okay, think so. what do I do? I divide three point six uh, million into a hundred thousand. Would that would that get it for me? So the, these are really bad odds. Yes, that is what we would do. One hundred thousand divided by three point two, right? One hundred thousand. I got my little divided by three million six hundred thousand. Why does it say? Dude, it is. It's point two. It's it's point uh, zero two seven. That's almost three percent. I don't get it though, because a hundred thousand is ten percent of a million. So then I just divided that oh by three. Gosh, that's that's bad. I've never done that statistic before. Did you? You well, might, dude. I'm telling that. you, I cried my eyes out last night. Jorge Ventura, the great, the greatest living. Journalist alive today, in my fucking opinion, Jorge Ventura sent me your film, and uh, I watched it. Just you know, in the living room, I pulled it up. I start bawling. My sister walks by the TV. She starts crying. <laughs> I'm holding my face like this, trying to keep my shit together. Wow. Uh, Caleb, meet Dominic. Dominic, Caleb. Caleb, what's up, man? Nice to meet you, Dominic. Hey. Caleb is uh, deployed. Uh, overseas in an undisclosed location somewhere in a desert. Wow. And so he's forced to work on the show. <laughs> <laughs> he's stuck here perpetually. Uh, the, the name of the movie we're talking about is called Dead on Arrival. It was uh, made in 2020. I also cannot recommend enough another movie he made called Knox's Story. I was unable to find uh, The Other Side, which is uh, another movie he made. I sent all three of these movies to my uh, nephews last night. And I said, boys, you got to watch this shit. They're, they're like uh, 14, 16, and 18. Perfect. Yeah. The premise of the movie is we've left the era of don't do drugs. They're bad for you, and you might get addicted to holy shit. If you get one speck of fentanyl, you're toast, and it's everywhere. And here's the catch, people. The vast majority of these people aren't doing fentanyl. It's 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 getting in their shit and they're dying from it. They're smoking weed. They're taking a fake Xanax. They're t- taking a fake Adderall. They're snorting some lines with some buddies, and somehow some fentanyl has got in there and they die. And I lived through the whole entire you know all the cancer deaths. I lived through all the AIDS deaths, and I never have had this many people in my circle die ever not even close from all those other things i don't know a single person who died from covid and yet i know a shitload of people who've already od'd on fentanyl and none of them you're right and as you say in the movie none of them were doing fentanyl 
No. <laughs> they weren't. It's like going to the store and buying an apple and you bite into it and it's a fucking cantaloupe. <laughs> that kills you. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's the bad part. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. Congratulations, dude. What a powerful movie. Thank you so much. Yeah. We, <laughs> so my wife is sitting in this room and it was literally her and I essentially um christine who you see in the credits she kind of got me into this space she had made a really really successful film called overtaken but she was just a mom from where i grew up who just wanted to do something about this issue a long time ago and so we partnered together a decade ago almost to start making these films it's been kind of like a one-man crew ever since we made dead on arrival with like thirty thousand dollars i think that was donated and we flew these parents out to where I am, rented an Airbnb and just told their story. And that's done it. It's now gone around the world. Hundreds, I, millions of views, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I've put it out for free. It's free to download for schools, which some people will be like, well, why would you do that? And you can't track how many people have viewed it. I wanted as little barrier to entry as possible. For yeah, the don't world. listen to those idiots. No. That Don't listen to those idiots. That yeah. whole view thing and likes and it's all jackassery. Yeah, right. it's all it's all. Yeah, I'm the greatest living podcaster alive and I get seven likes per Instagram post. Tell him, Caleb. Yeah, what's up with He's that? Not wrong. Hey, um, uh, you, you I'm sorry. Did you say you met your wife while making a movie? No, I'm saying she's in the well, actually, kind of. I met my wife making a video. That's a, a long story. But her and I were basically the crew for dead on arrival. I mean, it was, I wrote it, shot it, directed it, edited it, her by my side, hugging the parents as they're crying in between takes. And we just sat there and did it. I'm not some big production or crew or budget or whatever. It's just, it sure looks like it is, but your wife's not Christine Wood. No, no, she is another man's wife and as much, well, I won't say that. She is older than I am. Right. D right. Different, different, diff different league. We'll say just different league. Right. She's yeah. is she between me and you or is she me? I'm 50. 50, as they say. She is above. She's gone before you. She she okay, okay. Um, your first movie, how how old are you? I'm twenty-six. Okay. Uh Caleb, can we play the uh trailer? I know he's so accomplished already. His first movie I'm was in two thousand four. His first movie was in two thousand fourteen. Uh we're gonna this is a, a thirty second trailer from the movie Dead on Arrival. If you are a parent, you have to see this. It will be the fastest twenty minutes of your life and you will get to purge some um tears. Here we go. I can't hear it. For some reason. If you haven't it's her quiet Okay, I'll listen very well. What? Say it again. I gave you a shitty shitty link. It's her it's just really quiet. I'll find another Okay, it's probably on you the trailer's on YouTube also. Uh, oh, and that was on YouTube, but that's in stories. Mm-hmm. Uh to uh, and, and where do you live? Where's home for you, Dominic? So born and raised in Orange County, California. And went to school in Pennsylvania, came back to work in Los Angeles for three years. And now, uh, the beginning of 2020, moved to Boise, Idaho. So, twists and turn there. Wow. Yeah. And why Boise? Um, for many reasons that 
California is not anymore. Idaho is. And that's that's where I wanted to come and raise my family. Just values aligned more with what I'm going for in life uh, for the future. So I, I loved growing up in California. I just have watched it kind of fall apart over the past 26 years. And so I couldn't do it. I just, for my kids and my future family, it seemed right to come here. And it has been. We're super blessed to be here. So, okay, let's play this. And then I have questions about Boise because I've heard Boise's turning into California too. And you have to go further no- north. You have to go like towards Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, they're saying that, but, but no, but still good. Boise's good. Yeah. Okay. Action. Heard of fentanyl? It's time to learn about it now. Fentanyl is being deceitfully disguised as almost any drug, and as a result, is killing over 150 people a day in the United States alone. My new film, Dead on Arrival, sheds light on this silent crisis that is stealing the lives of curious young people. I'm asking you to watch and share it right now. And this O'Connell, there's an O'Connell family... That gets a um a thank you at the end of both Knox's story and Dead on Arrival. Who who are those cats? Yeah, so he has funded every one of these films I've done. Uh, his name is George O'Connell. He owns O'Connell Landscaping, which is in South Orange County, where I'm from. So he'll do like all the plants for Laguna Beach and all that kind of area. For people who don't know, Laguna Beach is off the hook. This area is um extremely extremely uh wealthy area beyond wealthy yeah so and he is beyond wealthy as a result of that and he's very graciously donated all the funds to make these films with literally all he's at yeah maybe put my name in some text or something super humble man and man i mean there's a great reward for him for having funded this film which has saved many many lives i believe already I believe so too. Do you think um do you think when I was a kid Dominic uh it, it was Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan and it was just the no campaign and then they had that thing called dare and after they um did studies on dare that was like some some acronym for keeping kids off of drugs they the final um belief on dare was is that it actually introduced more kids to drugs then uh they put then got kids off of drugs and that the just no campaign was actually a failure worse than a failure it backfired and introduced kids to drugs and caused them to rebel and i watch your movie and i don't get any of that effect from it but i'm concerned that i'm just old and maybe have you ever thought that maybe your your movie would make kids want to do drugs i don't see that at all by the way i want to tell you like i have three little boys and i'm like holy shit (laughs) you know Um, yeah i mean what are your thoughts on that i think you're right about dare and the just say no i think drug education even when i was in school was pretty corny and something to be made fun of honestly drugs i remember or dare pardon me people would say stands for like drugs are really exciting or something like that and they'd make fun of the acronym right and make some trendy t-shirts or stickers or whatever and, and kids would just make fun of that just say no. Kids don't like to hear no. They like to hear yes. And so they don't want to be told what not to do. I remember someone was telling me the other day when, when they're training pilots, 
when the pilot's flying the plane, if you tell the pilot, hey, don't hit this obstacle, he's more likely to hit the obstacle than if you say, hey, go around this. And so what I tried to do with my first film, The Other Side, it was actually about telling kids, hey, I'm not telling you don't do this. I'm telling you go this way. And it was a film interviewing a bunch of, we had a UFC quarterback. We had a fashion model and actor. People, young kids who were really successful already who had decided not to go that route. And it was like, hey, follow your passion and your purpose kind of thing, and you'll avoid this. That message has still works, but is not complete because of fentanyl now. So now I've had to go back to telling them, all right, I know you don't like to hear no, but I'm telling you, if you don't want to die, you got to listen to the word no, because there's no room for a mistake or a try or an experiment anymore. And so when I'm telling him it that way and as raw as I did in Dead on Arrival, I think they get it and I think they're smart enough to see, all right, this guy's not just some goofy, you know, parent or police officer telling me and police officers are not goofy. I'm just saying the, the right. they bring in the education that they bring in. It's not just some corny like don't do it because, you know, you're going to die and you're going to this. It's like, no, look at the desk. Here's the parents crying. Imagine that being your mom and your dad. And they, I think they can see that and understand, OK, I actually need to not do this and I need to listen. And uh, we've heard it with parents and teachers who have reported after kids watching the film just the other day. It was shown at uh, Porter Middle School. I think it's in the Valley near L.A. And teachers were reporting to Jaime, the dad in the film, saying these kids are literally walking back to class, some in tears, looking at their friends like, dude, I'm not going to do drugs ever. You know, with, with a straight face. It is, so it does make kids cry, too. That makes me happy to hear that. I, I really couldn't tell because every time the parents would talk, I would imagine I was them and I would fucking just come unhinged. Like yeah. Literally unhinged. I was sobbing. I get messages and, and comments from kids in middle schools or high schools saying, hey, they showed your film in my class today. And it really it brought me to tears. I cried the whole time. And I think it's them imagining putting them their parents through that kind of pain good and, and good. that keeps them from making that good. a parent dm me though and this kind of messed with me a little bit a couple of days ago and she said hey i i tend to ask people what did i do wrong in that film what would you have what did i miss what could i have done better and sh this is a parent who does some drug education and, and and stuff like that for like underprivileged youth and she said well your film does really well for the kids I show it, but there are some who don't have parents who love them like that and who maybe wouldn't cry for them, or at least they don't feel like they would. Right. And so that message kind of goes over their head a little bit. They feel like no one loves them enough, so they wouldn't disappoint anyone really if that happened to them. And that really kind of kind of messed with me. But I kind of wish I'd put in the film like, hey, you, you may think you're alone or you don't matter, and maybe that's why you're trying a pill or this kind of drug, but I want to let you know, you're not alone. I care about you. There is someone who loves you and cares about you who would not want to see you gone from this thing. So something to think about for the future messaging. But The, the reason why I liked your message is I didn't do drugs for any of the reasons that they say that people do drugs. Like I wasn't rebelling. There was no peer pressure. I wasn't running or trying to mask anything. It just, it was there. 
there was no, it, it was, just, you know what I mean? Just in high school, just, it was, or, you know, my parents just had a liquor cabinet and I just, I just was just like, come on, I'll try this. Or I, I like the way it feels. I mean, it, another thing that uh, resonated with me and we'll try to connect all these is I actually, for some reason in the seventh grade, my ankle started hurting. I have no idea why. And my mom took me to the doctor and it was just nagging me and nagging me. And the doctors actually told my parents that the reason why my ankle was hurting was it was some sort of rebellion on my part because my parents were divorced. I, it was just fucking nuts. My mom told me that when we got in the car. I'm like, this is fucking crazy. But anyway, they gave me Vicodin. Wow. And my mom and my mom, you know, uh, both my parents were workaholics and my mom just gave me the pills and I could, you know, regulate them on my own. And I remember taking a Vicodin at school and all of a sudden thinking I was the coolest kid in school. Because I just got so calm. I was so chill. Nothing could phase me. I was like, wow, this is fucking amazing. These pills are amazing. And to this day, it's, it, it stuck with me. I've only done, you know, I've only done, uh, when I, when I hurt my back and they prescribe Vicodin to me, it hasn't been years. I don't use them because later on I want to use them recreationally. I want to sit down and watch a movie and take a Vicodin and drink a beer. Right. And, and I never even thought, holy shit, that was introduced to me in the seventh grade. I didn't think about that until I saw your movie. I was like, wow, a fucking doctor. And then you mentioned in the movie the conflation of drugs. Um, these are drugs, but they're, they're prescribed to us as medicine. But they're not medicine. No. No, and, and you know, and I'm – I think there's a whole issue with overprescribing and things like that, which I didn't touch on in the film. The reality is a lot of this happens because of sports injuries or kids being treated like I was for depression or anxiety, had a kind of a rough childhood and just had some mental stuff I was dealing with at 15, 16 and doctor decided to put me on Prozac and Zoloft and stuff. Wow. Medication, and then give me Xanax as a backup, you know, in case of emergency type thing. And same thing, I relate, you know, I I would take a Xanax and I'd be like, dude, all is chill yeah. up in here. Yeah, you know? I was like, so chill in class all of a sudden. I would be going on a flight or whatever, going back between college and I didn't really like flying too much at the time and I'd take a Xanax and, and then I'd hear Drake's song, come on, Papa Xanax, 15 hours till I land, have me out like a And I'm like, yeah, I am out like a light. I'm not worried about nothing. You know, and I kind of, I didn't become a Xanax addict, thank God. But if I had been in a position where I couldn't get those pills anymore and it felt like I needed them, okay, let me just get on Snapchat or hit up my buddy at college and say, hey, bro, you got anyone who has Xanax? I just need a couple. I just need a couple, bro. I'm flying back home for Christmas, going to go see my family. I just, you know, where I can get a couple of Xanax. And cool, if, if, if it were now, you know, today, that guy would be like, sure, dude. Yeah, I got this guy, my friend on Snapchat. He sells these Xanax pills. Cool, man. Let me get two. All right, 20 bucks. Yeah, whatever. No problem. He'll show up to my dorm room, give me the couple pills. I open them. Says Xanax. Has the little lines in. I can break a little half off. Little do I know it has no Xanax in whatsoever. It's been pressed to look like Xanax and is actually just a white pill binder with a bit of fentanyl in it. And I hop on to take that plane, take, you know, break off two of those little squares and I'm dead on the plane ride at home and they're trying to resuscitate me and I land and I died of a fentanyl overdose. These are things that are happening now that I missed 
just a few years ago, even though I was a good kid going to college, had big plans for the future and just needed a Xanax every once in a while to help calm my anxiety that I was trying to work through desperately. Right. And so there are these good kids out there now who are not drug addicts, not looking to take fentanyl, just looking for some relief, you know, and they're duped into taking this disgusting, horrible poison that ultimately kills them. And so it's a different world. I, I you do you do mention I think it's in Knox's story that um, the United States makes up five percent of the U.S. popu uh, the U.S. makes up five percent of the world's population, but they consume seventy five percent of the uh, pharmaceuticals. And I have done a bit on this show that shows that I, I put a list of like the however many countries there are in the world, and I showed that our consumption of pharmaceuticals is larger than the GDP gross. Uh, what's GDP stand for? Gross domestic product yeah, yeah um it's more than half the countries on that list so we spend more money in the united states on pharmaceuticals than the entire gdp of a country like finland or new zealand our pharmaceutical economy is stronger yeah, no. and I, and that first popped on my radar one time i was i was making a movie over in kenya and when i was flying back i heard how much the united states spent just on sleeping pills and I saw that our sleeping pill consumption was larger than the GDP of Kenya. And I was like, holy shit. Everyone's, everyone's on drugs, huh? Yeah. I mean, I mean, when I say everyone, it's like, I think I heard 80% of the U.S. population pops pills on a daily basis. It's wild. It's become so normalized. And people look at it as they say self-medicating. You know, that's like the, the term now. Oh, I'm just self-medicating. And it's like, what, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Self-medicating. It's just, I, I don't know. I feel like that, I'm 26, so I don't know. But I feel like that wasn't a term 20 years ago. I always just heard it around uh, marijuana. It, right. People would say, hey, I'm self, you self-medicate. Yeah, and now that's just become a blanket term for I'm just taking all sorts of pills and drugs and things. And it's. It's just become okay. And people don't want to deal with any emotions anymore. I had another conversation of, you know, men, particularly like masculinity and stuff going out the window because men don't want to deal with emotions. And there's doctors and people are throwing pills at them all the time to, to cover up and women too, but, you know, just avoiding actually dealing with emotions and working through things and building up strength and, and stuff in your mental toughness, so to speak, and just popping a pill. And it's just making men and women weak and beggars for these drugs to the point where they'll hop on social media and, and buy a pill from someone they don't even know. Uh, I think we're getting a hum from one of your mics. Do you hear it? It's like an, an electrical hum. Okay. Do you hear it, Caleb? You do. Maybe maybe one of the yeah. plugs needs to be pushed in a little tighter. All right, let me see. Sorry to bug you. No, sorry. Is it still going? Yeah. Weird. W will you try logging out and coming right back in? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Did you guys hear that at home? It's a little. Sounds like a fly. Sounds like flies are coming around my office. Vitaly's at thirty-six, by the way. I killed another one today. Oh. Congratulations. Thank you. 
uh, uh, men self-medicate with Viagra and good website from the links in the light. Jeez, Louise. Corey. My goodness. Let's see. We'll bring Dominic back in. Hmm. It's still there. We'll just deal with it. Uh, Audrey. Yes, I was actually depressed after I had a catastrophic knee injury in the ocean three years ago so i get it but also my friends don't incorporate uh things like eating right or exercise either when when um another thing i'm noticing this is off subject a little bit but uh vaping it seems like that's just like taking over our youth i was talking to one of my nephews and he said that the his friend he's the only him and one other guy there's only two of them and their crew these are healthy good kids they're the only two that don't vape. Wow. Are, I was are you vape. seeing that everywhere? I've seen it firsthand. I was a vape crackhead in high school and college. I'm not kidding. I And I didn't, I've never drank, first of all, by the way. As a long story, I grew up in AA meetings with my mom and stepdads and just kind of scarred me. Just didn't want to, you know, go ahead, everyone else. But I just didn't have an interest. Hardly smoked weed, never, besides the couple of pills to help for my mental health, just no drugs, but nicotine and those e-cigarettes. Never smoked cigarette, but vaped for years because in high school, it was just like this new cool thing that tasted so good and the flavors and the, I mean, someone handed me, here's vanilla. Ooh, oh my gosh. And here's blue raspberry and here's this and here's this candy and this churro and this, all this stuff. And next thing you know, I'm like, two or three years down the line and actually addicted to nicotine. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's so worse now because now they've made so many different little discreet. I remember someone who watched my film said uh, a parent, their kid said they caught him smoking, you know, a vape or whatever. And they said, yeah, the bathrooms at school, the kids don't call them the bathroom. They call them the jewel room. Wow. Is and- that the preferred vape, the jewel? It was when I was. I think now there's like puff bars, I think, have kind of taken over. Jewel got a lot of um, criticism for marketing to youth. And then they had to put some pretty strict regulations. I think they cut some of their flavors and stuff down. But this puff bar and all these other companies just saw what Jewel was doing and just went full out with the colors and the different flavors. And the and the your- device is so nice. <laughs> yeah. It just fits very nicely in your hand. It's so nice. It slips in your pocket. It's thin. Yeah. It, it, it's nice on your lips. How did you quit? My my wife's laughing. So I had actually quit prior to meeting her in LA. I had gotten my wisdom teeth out and I knew I was like, I know I don't want to be a slave to this thing. This sucks. And so I was getting my wisdom teeth out at like 19 or 20 home from college. And they're like, okay, you can't use a straw or like suck on anything for like two weeks. And I was like, okay, so I can't vape then. But I didn't want to ask the dentist that. I just assumed I was like, all right, I'm going to use this opportunity to quit. So then I quit for about a year or two. Then I met my beautiful wife. And (laughs) once we started dating, she had been leaving her jewel at home. I didn't know she was doing that. And eventually we had started living together at one point in LA and she's like, Hey, by the way, I have this jewel. Is that okay? Like if I do this or not? And I was just like, is that okay? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and I was like right back in because here's this beautiful woman that I love, and like, oh, now it's okay. I can handle it. And it was, it was what, babe? Probably nine months or so of just full blown back to the crack, you know. And then it got to the point to answer your question one day where I realized this was happening again, and I was like, this is so stupid. And we were starting to feel like <clears throat> you'd get kind of mucusy and stuff. And I got to the point where I was like, we're going to stop this one way or we're not going to stop it at all. And so I grabbed everything I had. I chucked it on the floor of our apartment, stomped on it, poured all the liquid out, threw it in the trash. And I said, we're never doing this again. And, and that was it? I haven't done it since. No. But Wow. It's now- very easy to relapse. Be careful. Always be on guard. It's so easy to relapse. Nicotine is so powerful. Yeah. And and I won't now. I know I won't now. And I and I'll say, "Wow, you just threw it on the ground. It must not be that hard." She spent months looking at it and like walking by people, and you'd walk by and smell it, and she'd be like, mm, "And I'd have to like say, no, we're not doing it anymore. We're not doing it anymore." It's if you don't have that kind of discipline, don't even start, even with that, you know. And that's nothing compared to fentanyl and pills either, by the way. Isn't it interesting? That's the same theme in your movie, too. And I've known this from a young age also. Nobody wants to be addicted to anything. No No one wants to be addicted to the vape. No one wants to be addicted to drugs. No one wants to be a drug addict. It sucks. Mm -hmm. And then and and now they have this other term for drug addicts that that freaks me out and they call it homeless people. But those aren't homeless people. Those are people that I'd say 99% of uh, the people who are homeless, what they've done is they've prioritized drugs over shelter. Mm-hmm. And so we have this giant movement to try to help homeless people, but it, it's like um, trying to help someone who's drowning, but you help them. You're, you're, uh, you don't realize they're drowning and you try to help them with something else. You try to feed them. You would never like throw food at someone who's drowning. And that's what it's like trying to help someone who's homeless get shelter. It's like that. That's not the fucking problem. You're actually going to make it worse when you give them shelter. Yeah, I was talking to someone who deals, works with homeless the other day, and she had said, you know, a lot of these people that I am talking to or interviewing or trying to help, they just straight out say, I don't want to do life anymore. That's why I'm out here. Whether they're addicted to drugs or not, they've said, I just don't want to. It's too complicated. I have to get a job, and then all my money goes to rent, and I have all these bills, and I have all these things. I just, I'd rather not. It's too tough for me. It's too hard. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying about people not wanting to deal with emotions anymore. They just say, life is tough. Bad things happen. So I'd rather just self-medicate and not have any responsibility. And it's just a growing, growing trend. And um, it's really sad to see, you know, it's sad to see. And it's sad to see people, like you said, throwing money and things like food and stuff, which is not the root of that issue whatsoever. I, I was homeless for many, many years, and every single homeless person I knew was addicted to nicotine, all of them, 100%. And it was only me and one other guy in the entire thousands of people that I ever met who were homeless. We were the only two who weren't addicted to drugs. We were the only two who didn't uh, drink 40s all day, and, and pop pills, smoke weed, but all the others did. Wow. All of them. And the other guy was some old, old, old guy. And it was crazy. 
It, it, it was absolutely nuts. And, uh, there's a there's a movie that you can see on YouTube for free. Everyone should see this. Everyone, everyone should see this. It's made by Dominic Tier Tierno. Yeah. Uh, it's called Knox's Story. Uh, and and it, this reminds me of it uh, of the movie. My brother has been battling drug addiction ever since college. He's 50 now. He's been in and out of rehab and recovery programs. I think those programs did nothing more than exacerbate the addiction. That's another problem. Uh, and that, that's what that movie will really resonate with you. That's another problem with uh, drug addiction. The recovery has become such big business and it's full of landmines. So I have a friend who just went to prison and I'm, I'm, I'm so concerned for him because in there you just learn to take and we've had a bunch of prisoners on this show. You learn just to take more drugs and how to be more involved with crime. And you start to realize that this is going to hurt to say, but the vast majority of things that are supposed to help you really make you codependent. And, 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 and that's probably why you left California, because we don't have a government that actually wants to help people. We have a government that's making people codependent. And what does codependent mean? Instead of helping people get off drugs, it's um, supporting their behaviors. Mm -hmm. Instead of helping people with mental illness, we're, chopping, we're, we're supporting them chop off their penises or their breasts or do just crazy shit. Yeah. Yep. How, how, how did you find these parents in your, in, in your movie, uh, Dead on Arrival? So... I heard about fentanyl from the first mother who spoke, not from her personally. I saw an article, like I said in the film, I, I, I said, I saw this article, a kid died 14 years old from Aliso Viejo, California. That was a city that I had grown up for in. 14, 14. And it was like, he was like smart young kid, right? innocent 14 i'm looking at him like he's like a little baby kid like, and i saw pictures of him watching cartoons on the couch with his sister i'm like he took a pill and died i'm like and he ordered it off i'm like how did he do that right and i'm not even that far out of you know like i still remember being that age so i'm like i there's no way i would have done that at 14 what the heck like i thought cigarettes were like ah you know intense that and so I was reading this article and I'm looking at this kid and I'm like, I think this is kind of one of those like extreme stories that they share just to try to get clicks and stuff. And, and I'm like, I don't know if that's really representative of this fentanyl issue. And so I was like, I'm going to do some more research. I knew I wanted to make a fentanyl film. And so then I went to like, okay, there's these fentanyl addicts on the street. And I looked at heroin, which is now basically fentanyl. There's really not really heroin anymore. It's all it's a lot of fentanyl. And I'm like, okay, do we do that? Do we go interview like Skid Row and all this stuff? I'm like, no, that doesn't seem right. Everyone talks about that. You know what I mean? And so I went, I just kept circling back to this kid. And eventually I was like, let me see if there's any other kids dying from this. And so I looked and it was like a city 10 minutes, 20 minutes away. A month later, another 14-year-old kid, same story, had a sleepover took a pill, fentanyl, dead. And so I'm looking at fentanyl deaths and I just see all these young kids, young kids, young kids. And I'm like, first of all, COVID's going on. So no one's talking about anything else. I'm like, how is this not being shared? Kids are dying in every state, every day from these pills all the time. I'm like, this is what we have to make the film 100%. So I hit up Amy, who was Alex's mom, the 14 year old's mom. And she had started this organization, Void, with these three other parents who had all lost their children the same year, different ages, but same drug, 
same kind of thing where they thought they were ordering something online and they got something totally different. And so we flew those four parents out here to Idaho, rented an Airbnb and just told their stories. And, and they all worked out. All four were good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you nailed it. I was thinking when after the movie was over, the filmmaker in me was like, God, I wonder he probably filmed with eight parents and had to cut four out. I wonder how he told them that he cut them out. You didn't have to cut anyone out. No, there was, I, there was stuff that I was sitting there. The, the hardest part of the film was choosing what to cut out because it was, I mean, we had maybe like 45 minutes of footage with each parent and you just want to say it all because people don't get it and you want them to get it so bad. But I had to keep it at a length where kids would, would pay attention. You know, did you cry in every interview? My wife and I were talking about this literally two nights ago. She was, and I'm so glad she's there because, and you're a filmmaker, so you'll know. I mean, when you're, especially one man crew, when you're on set and I have a job to do, I've been given this grace, I feel like, to not be emotionally influenced at all while I'm doing my craft. And so someone could be there telling the saddest story ever that if I just heard in a conversation like this, it might bring me to tears. And I'm just poker face like, in fact, I'm actually smiling and laughing sometimes, which sounds really cynical and sinister, but I'm not looking at it here. Here's the thing. This parent son already passed. It's sad. It's horrible. It's disgusting. But I'm here to fight a battle. I'm here to make sure that this story goes out to millions of people and hearts are changed and this doesn't happen again. So I'm the inside. I'm joyful. I'm looking at him crying on camera, telling his story. And I'm not going, oh, this poor guy, I'm going to cry with him. My wife does that. It's needed. They need a hug. I'm going, ha, ha, ha. Guess what's coming? We're going to change the world with this and lives are going to be changed. So when I'm on set, no, to answer your question, I'm not, I'm not really crying. I'm not down. I'm not depressed. I've, I feel like I've been given a grace to, to do this and not be affected by it. Um, you're, you're happy that you're getting content for a powerful film. Yeah. And it's, you're like, oh, this is exactly what I needed. This is exactly what I needed. And I'm just like, wow, thank God this person sitting in front of me, the right person telling this story right now. This is exactly what we need. And I'm happy about it. I'm not happy about what he went through. That doesn't bring me joy at all. But I'm happy that we can use it to turn it, turn it. I'm happy that we can use it to turn it into something very powerful and very impactful and use it for good. And then your wife is crazy emotionally um, uh, available and vulnerable. And so then the the person who's talking can even feel more safe because someone else is relating to them. And so you have the best of both worlds. You have it's a guy who's filming who knows what he's getting. And then you have someone else who's letting them know, yeah, th it's okay to cry here. This, this is this is crying material. If you watch Jaime, particularly the, the last parent in the film, I think – I put his for last because I think his is just personally the most impactful on an emotional level. You can see him, you know, I, I kind of frame my shots very centered. And so they're looking at the camera, but you'll see Jaime go and look over while he's talking. And he's looking at my wife because my wife is sitting there with tears looking at him like crying. And so, and I almost put it in the film, but again, I didn't just for time. He had stopped at one point. And just couldn't talk anymore. And my wife ran to him crying and they just hugged each other and held each other for like a minute and a half. And he cried and on her, my wife's shoulder. Yeah. And you'll see at some points he does, he does look over to her 
And so it is a beautiful dynamic that we have um, where I get to do what I do and she's there just to just, yep, right there. You saw him look over right there. Yeah. Oh, you guys, you guys got to see this movie. It's such a good movie. I know some of you are going to be like, hey, I don't, why would I sit down and watch a movie? It's going to make me cry. I'm telling you, this movie is going to make you a better person. This, this is going to make you a better person. I, 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 when I watched it, I was also thinking, I hope this doesn't scare parents to become overprotective. But, um, but what you do need to be is uh, vigilant and, uh, um, and you need to be a parent. You don't need to be overprotective. You just need to be a fucking parent and always be there for a kid. It knocks his story at um, the dad says, and I don't want to ruin that film for anyone, but the dad says the hardest part for him was the fact that his son who was a mile away from him um, didn't come to his dad. Didn't know that, Hey, I was here for you. And so, you know, somehow my mom has mastered that craft and always like, I know that she's always there for me. I can always go to her, but man, that, that is, I think that's gotta be one of the goals as parents, right? That's like one of the big takeaways for the movie, build a relationship with your child so that they know they can always come to you. Yeah. And be real with your kids. Like don't sugarcoat anything because if you're giving them a phone, they're hearing way more than you think they are. They know all the language. They know who's doing what they know about every drug. They know about sex. They know about all these things already. And they're coming to you watching cartoons on a Saturday in their pajamas. And you think they're just this innocent little, you know, and they're, they're not, they're being fed all of this nasty darkness that you don't know about because you've given them access to the internet that's what you've done with social media and they're gonna see it and you don't want them to see it and form their own opinions and thoughts about it before you get to them you don't want to do that i'm having my own daughter in march and we've made a decision already like she's just gonna know she's gonna know about everything i'm not gonna scare her you know i never live a life of fear but she's gonna know about everything that's out there and everything that's trying to trap her because that's what's going on. And um, I'd say, don't hold back, you know, please don't hold back. You brought up Knox's story and I, this is actually sad. Oh, <laughs> our gender reveal. Yeah. Uh, Mar- March, you got your baby coming in March. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a very happy thing, but you brought up Knox's story. I don't want to forget it because it goes to the parents point. Uh, Knox's dad actually recently passed from suicide and I wanted the fireman, the fireman. Yeah. And I say that I mentioned that to say he has three daughters left. Yeah, I know. And it's the, just losing one was so much for him that he was a fireman, right? And his son had gotten clean gone into recovery programs, became someone who worked at recovery programs and brought hundreds of people to sobriety. And then kind of out of nowhere, relapse, right? Met someone at like a TJ Maxx, picked up a bag of heroin, shot it up in the bathroom, dead. Hey, was it a girl? Was it a girl he met? It was a girl drug dealer. I don't know if they were together or what, but isn't that interesting? Um, I'm not saying it has to do with being a girl. It could go the other way. It could have been a boy meeting a girl. But isn't it interesting? That's the same story that you had in regards to the vape. The vaping. I yep. think. Yeah. I think met sex and love are huge drivers for men to do stupid things for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But so that's what happened to Knox, and 
and this is years after we made the film. The father knew we put the film out, right? He had seen all the good that had been done with it. And he was just fighting this battle internally that he, he maybe wasn't telling people about and didn't know where to go to for help. And unfortunately, I think it was last year he took his life because of the weight of, of that. And that's going back to, you know, kids seeing what it does to their parents and then realizing like, oh, no, I never want to cause that to my mom or dad. And I know if Knox would have seen what it had done to his family and now his father, he, he wouldn't have done the same. Um, but, yeah, just as a message to parents, don't let it <laughs> don't let it get to that point. Right. Yeah. There, one of the most powerful lines uh, – I can't even remember which, which movie it was in of the two. I, I think it was uh, Dead on Arrival. It's a father who had four daughters, and one of them passes uh, from uh, g- getting killed by fentanyl. And I, I didn't understand why they would say getting killed by fentanyl, but the reason why it's getting killed by fentanyl is because they're, they're not taking fentanyl. They're doing some other substance, and then the fentanyl's in there. And so they inadvertently take it, and it kills them. They're basically poisoned. And that that subject's also touched on. We'll get back to that. And he said that when he looks at family pictures now of him and his wife and his three daughters together, he doesn't see his family. He sees a family with someone missing. He he all he only focuses on the one that's missing and uh, basically just talks about it as a daily uh, a minute to minute daily nightmare. He's living. Because one of his children is gone. Yeah, he said in the film, one of the most powerful lines I thought in the film was he said, it's an odd feeling looking forward to dying because you know that's when your heart will be made whole again. Yeah, that I grabbed my face when he said that. That that ripped me apart. It's um, it's just a void. I think their name of their organization, Void, um, that they had started is just a perfect representation of what they feel every day. It's just an empty hole every day that they're, desperately trying to fill and um man yeah so so what i don't i I had no idea that um uh you could get drugs so easily using social media you're telling me that these and i don't use snapchat i only i don't use facebook either i just use i just mess around on instagram a lot but basically how how does how does that work is snapchat the drug is is that the app that people use to get drugs or there's a bunch of them Snapchat, I think, is the main platform used because of the anonymity factor and the chats disappear, right? So I didn't see it coming. I used to use Snapchat in high school, but I can see how it's happened now. I saw Snapchat turn into a platform where people, young people would sell like naked pictures of themselves for money. And so now it's turned into drugs because there's a local feature that's been added to where now you can actually speak to people in your area And so once that happened, drug dealers locally decided, hey, I can get on. No one will know who I am. I can talk to kids who are local to me within a driving distance, sell them drugs, and then everything disappears after the transaction takes place. So that's what's going on. They'll advertise and post their menu of drugs on Snapchat. It'll get picked up by the local, you know, geotag filters or whatever that stuff is, right? And kids can search for these emojis and hashtags and things that are for example m30 is very popular that's the oxycontin m30 which is not really oxycontin it's made to look like the m30 and it's just fentanyl those little blue pills and so they'll get on there order it 
have this conversation with a dealer, totally anonymous, send them snap cash or whatever, or, or Venmo or cash up through, through their phone. And the dealer will show up to their family's home. The kids will go outside and say, Hey, my friend's here. He's dropping something off or whatever. Okay, honey. Walks outside, grabs a bag, stuffs in his pocket, walks inside. Good night, mom, dad. Love you. Go in his room, put some music on, pop the pill. Parents find him dead the next morning. And they go, what the heck happened? Totally blindsided. And by the way, he is not telling isolated instances. No. Like, like we started the show. It's two points. If, if there's every year being born now is 3.6 million kids are born in the United States every year. And I think we're over 100,000 um, fentanyl deaths a year now in 2022. Uh, Caleb will look that up now. So that's 2.7% for those of you who, who don't know. That's massive. How come how, um, are people get? Aren't the drug dealers afraid that when they get there, it's going to be a sting and it's going to be cops who set them up? Maybe. I mean, I I don't use Snapchat anymore for this reason, but I I could imagine that they have some way to verify if it's a fake account or not. Oh wow! wow. I mean, I, you'd have to do a lot to as a cop to make one kid's account. Um, to look like a real kid where they have friends and followers and all that would, you can tell when Instagram accounts fake, you know, I imagine. Right, right, right. Does, does, um, how does snap, can you, if if I went to, I've never even uh, used Snapchat. If I go to a Snapchat account, do I, I can see like a history of like stuff people have posted. Is it like that? Is it like Facebook and Instagram like that? And so that I can, how, how would you verify if someone's account is real or not? Do you have followers on Snapchat? There's, um, there's like points, at least when I used it, there was points for sending snaps. You build up points. So like the amount okay. of conversations you've had shows like a number, like this is how many snaps I've sent. And yeah, I think you can post stories and history. So there'd have to be friends and, and points there. And, you know, for uh, cops to do, I'm not saying they haven't, but to put all that work in just to try to catch one dealer, there's so many now. You know, we're also not talking about the accessibility of how easy it is to become a drug dealer today. You can order all the ingredients for fentanyl on the internet and ship it to your door and put it together yourself. In fact, they sell the pill binders and the powder on Amazon. You can get them delivered by Prime. By and binders, you mean the stuff that makes the 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 materials, the chemicals stick together, and then yeah. some sort of printing press, and you can press. print your own pills. Yeah, both of those you can order on Amazon. In fact, if you search for um, bind, supplement powder, they'll use different wordings on Amazon. They'll have all these different colors, uh, at least last time I looked, and they had 20 or 30 different colors of powder, of which you can make supplements or vitamins from, they'll say. And typically, when you look at these listings, just like when you go to buy a T-shirt, right? What's usually the first color? If there's like 10 colors, it'll be black or white, like the most popular. The first color powder that is listed on these Amazon listings is this baby blue, which is the same color of Oxycontin M30s, which tells me that's the most popular one that's orders that's ordered, which tells me that, you know, these college age or whoever drug dealers who are wanting to put this stuff together in their own home, We'll, uh, we'll just, Oh shit. Oh shit. Hey, and and I just went to Amazon and I put capsule making machine and you can buy, I mean, for sure you can make capsules. There it is. Mixed powder, baby blue. I ain't lying. God, this is nuts. 
So he's got to figure out how to get the fentanyl, which is not that hard. I mean, it's, I don't, I haven't dove into a black market or anything like that all that much, but it's another like, great, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say $10,000 worth of fentanyl powder turns into about a million bucks on the street. So you could imagine wow. why they're doing this. Um, and, and, and then, and then inadvertently you end up killing people, uh, thinking you're just being an entrepreneur selling pills and you inadvertently, kill. has anyone ever, has anyone been tried and prosecuted, um, for any of these, like, you know, like some 16 year old kid who thinks he's going to sell fentanyl at school and he makes a pill and it kills someone and they try him for murder. Yeah. So Matt, the, the one who we're talking about where he only looks at his daughter who's lost out of his four daughters. Yeah. They just so the, his daughter passed in 2020 and just a couple months ago got him to do a murder plea. And so two the, years, the guy who sold it to her, sold it to her. Yeah. And then he's one of the very, very, very few. In fact, most of the people who have most of the families who have this happen, uh, the cops will show up and they they'll treat it as an overdose crime scene, which are not crime scene. It's just an overdose death, which is way different than processing things as a homicide. So they don't take enough evidence to even, so Matt had to go through hell to literally just get the, get the phone back from the police and the, all the information that they need to prove that this guy had knowledge of what he was selling, knowing that, right. The mens rea, as they say, like that he had the knowledge that he was selling something to this girl. That was not what she thought it was that he knew could possibly kill her. Just to get that took years because they had showed up and basically said, I'm sorry, sir, your daughter died of an overdose. She shouldn't have been using drugs. And they treat it like that. So now I think a lot of um, police departments and stuff are changing the way that they handle overdoses and showing up with a homicide team rather than a couple officers to, you know, cry with a couple parents because they're looking at it as killings and murders, not uh, drug use. Austin Hartman, uh, I've got a buddy who works for the DEA. He said they're directing most of their attention towards homemade synthetic pill operators. Yeah, there's so many of them. Let's not forget the the FBI has 80 people working there who are trying to block tweets. <laughs> right. yeah. Um, After I watched your movie, YouTube started suggesting all these fentanyl movies to me and drug overdose movies to me. And what's so unique about your film is every single one of these other films – is um, showing people who are on the streets. It's showing the streets. And what your movie shows is the, not the streets. These are people in suburbia, like you said, a 14-year-old kid who, who um, just goes on his Snapchat, orders a pill, has it delivered to his house, unbeknownst to his parents, and boom, he's dead in the morning. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, you put together a collage of all of these parents. That part, uh, I think my sister was in the room when that came on, and I, I she gasped uh, audibly, like "Oh shit!" Um, how did you get those? Or how did you did you get all the? How did you get all those parents saying holding up the pictures and saying my child died from fentanyl? Those were just a few of the personal relationships that those four parents have made after their kids dying. So they're in a Facebook groups and stuff with thousands, like Jaime says, thousands of parents who have all had this happen in their own home. And it was just, we put out one post and said, Hey, you know, I thought this would be a 
cool way to close the film. Would anyone be down to hop on Zoom? And we had, you know, almost 50 parents just like that. I think it was next next day or something show up. It was easy. That was easy. The easiest part was to find them, which is horrible. Crazy. But there are so many. Yeah. Uh, um, Dominic uh, Tierno, uh, three movies, uh, Dead on Arrival, Knox's Story, and The Other Side. Um, I- am I just a bad – my wife says I'm a bad looker. Um, why couldn't I find The Other Side? Is that because I'm a bad looker or because it's – I mean, I went on YouTube, typed in the other side, and scrolled for 15 minutes. I'm not, no exaggeration, yeah. looking for that movie. So I made that when I was 17. I had just graduated high school, and the film was bought. I didn't know what I was doing at that point. So I was paid to make that film a very small amount because I was young, and I just wanted to do it. And so, yeah, good on you. That's the way to yeah, do it. I mean, I'm glad I did. I have no regret. But I didn't keep the film. It was basically, film was bought. And so there was actually a nonprofit made called Kids from the Other Side around that film. And I, I'm not sure that they're doing it anymore. There, It was a doctor who was who was leading that. And I, I have the film file. I just never uploaded it because they ha- had been the ones to distribute it. And I think their accounts and websites, just, they're not doing it anymore. Who so, is it? Is it? Did you sell it to Gravitas? <laughs> no. No, it was, a, it was an addiction specialist. And he did a lot to help make the film possible. And he took it to a lot, a lot of kids in different states and stuff. And so they did, they did well with it. I may put it up again. I may not. It's 10 years old. Dude, Almost. put it put it up. It's you know, it's also one of those where it's like I got a. There should be no ego in it. I made it when I was seventeen. Right, it's not the best thing I've ever made. But you know, I'm really trying to point people towards this fentanyl message because what happened here in Idaho, they're actually using my film, and I meet with some of the people who run the drug education here in Idaho, and so they'll they'll say, well, we love the other side. It was just some of the schools we don't know if we should. They think it's a little harsh, a little extreme. And I'm like, that's exactly what I don't want to happen. I don't want the other side to become a substitute for this fentanyl message, which needs to happen now. So I've been really trying to focus my YouTube account. I put away everything besides that project. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah, 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 yeah. You really, your YouTube account, you're directing everything to that. Yeah. Man, what, it, it, it's it's so, um, are, are you working on another film? Yeah, so... Next project, this is my first time saying it publicly, is a film that has been put on my heart called Guard Your Heart. And basically what I want to get into now is going to the root of why these kids are making this decision to try drugs or, or order a pill or something in the first place. And I want to look at social media because I have a personal story, which I'm going to tell in the film uh, about me being 12, 13 years old and Instagram coming out and me getting an iPod touch or an iPhone for the first time and having this access to the internet and Spotify and streaming music and YouTube and how that started to affect my brain, the way I speak, the way I thought about myself, the things I thought upon and meditated on and how that ultimately caused a lot of suffering and pain and anxiety and depression in my life. I think a lot of music and pop culture and videos glorify drugs, sex, um, anxiety, depression, suicide, and there's no. Bro, question. you're too young to be there already. You got old. 
No, I, I know. <laughs> you sound like a 50 year old man. <laughs> and I'm not going to in the film. I'm not going to, you know, like, yeah, you guys stop watching this stuff. It's not going to work. Right. Yeah. But I'm just going to tell my story and say, hey, here's everything I consumed. Right. I went in the bathroom and watched porn every day. Right. I don't anymore. Right. I've been freed from that addiction. Hey, every boy would do that. Yeah. No, but I if did. If you give them a phone, if you give a boy a phone, he's watching porn. 100%. Porn. I yep. was listening to whatever music I wanted. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I was going on Xbox Live or, or PlayStation Live or whatever and, and playing at 12, shooting a bunch of people and killing them on a controller and then hearing like a 20-year-old yell in my ear that my mom's a whore and stuff because I shot him on Call of Duty. And you're laughing, right? And it's like, okay, but I'm 12. And I'm hearing this stuff, and that starts to become my language. So then I'm playing. Is that, is that the way it is? I've never played one of those games. Is that that's a true? Like you'll you'll Dude, be, oh, it's true, right. Caleb. No. You shoot it's someone, so and, they, and they, no. a twenty year old will call twelve year old moms a whore. It's like oh, fuck your mom, bitch, and then it's just it's oh like, my god. So I'm Dude, 12, love, right, yeah. and I'm sitting there all day, and I'm not going outside anymore and with friends because now we're all inside playing games. And so I go play these games and I'm online and I'm hearing all this stuff and I'm cussing back and my parents aren't home. So I'm doing whatever I want. Right. And then I go in my iPod and I go jack off to, do, you know, get my steam off because I'm all amped up from shooting people online. And then I throw on some rap music and it's talking about drugs and all this stuff. And I'm 12, 13, 14. And now now it's worse because now it's social media and they're looking at reels and TikToks and you watch the video and the next one just pops up automatically and they're sitting there with their eyes wide open, just letting anything come in in the midst of doing all this. And they're addicted to their phones and it's doing something to their minds. It's doing something to the way they think about themselves. Obviously the choices they make and um, that needs to be addressed in a huge, huge way because that's become so normalized and parents have no idea what is going on in their kids' minds. No clue. Uh, it's funny. I've, it, one of the themes in the show is uh, you should never give your kid. I, I don't think you should give your kid a cell phone. And I think that when parents say that they do it for safety reasons, that's just bullshit. Basically, what parents are doing is, is they're saying that they're scared and they're willing to jeopardize their kid to alleviate their own fear. I uh, There's this kid that my kid plays uh, tennis with, and he didn't get a cell phone until he was 15. And then I've had some guests on the show who just are just young people, you know, your age, and they're they have their shit so together. And I, the thing I always hear from them, the common theme is I'm homeschooled. I was homeschooled. I didn't get a cell phone till I was older. And even yesterday at the skate park, I met a 15 year old kid. He was the coolest kid ever. He was so fucking cool. And I'm like, uh, uh, um, no, no, he was older now. He, he was like 20. I met him yesterday at the skate park. He was like 23. And I go, Hey dude, I go, were you homeschooled? And he goes, no. And I go, when'd you get a cell phone? He goes, not till I was almost 16. I go, were you the last one in your friends to get a cell phone? He goes, oh, yeah, everyone else got them when they were like 12. And I'm like, no shit. I go, do you think that's why you're so cool? He's like, that's a huge part of it. When you see it, fuck your friends up. He goes, fuck them up. Mm. He's like, my friends all of a sudden change. Giving a kid a cell phone, you you know, like when one of your friends would start doing drugs and they just change. I don't know if you had anyone, any friends who ever get into meth, but all of a sudden shit starts getting weird. Mm. Um, It's like that with kids. You give them cell phones and they just start changing. Yep. It's exactly what the film is going to be about because I started changing and I'm, I said what I said about, I went to Jack. I'm, I really don't like saying talking like that. So it's just, but I said it because that was my attitude. It was just like, yeah, yeah. I'm doing that. Yeah. You know? 
And yeah. it's changed a lot for me now. So, but it's, that's what it did. It changed me to where I was just, I would talk like that. I would think like that. And it was just, I had to live in my own little world and my, no one had any idea. And it cost me, it cost me for a long time. I'm still working through the memories and kind of re renewing my mind, you know, to not think these sort of ways anymore because you develop habits and patterns and neuro neuro pathways and all that stuff that happens in the brain and in the soul. And I want to help kids prevent that. You know, I use the analogy of um, one time when I was 17 or 18, I was in my room and I had gotten like a switchblade knife. I thought it was really cool. Right. And so I was using it to they like, are pretty cool. They are they pretty are cool. cool. I have a few now. <laughs> right. But I was sitting there, I was like opening up a package, right, with my knife. And I'm sitting there and I slipped with the knife and I stabbed myself in the thigh. And I pull the knife out of my thigh. Ah, and the blood's just pouring down my leg. I'm in my room, like, oh crap. Right. And just blood just pouring out. And I probably needed stitches, but I didn't want to tell anyone. I was embarrassed at the time that I had stabbed myself in the leg. Yeah, just, yeah. What kind of gangster stabs himself with his own switchblade? Yeah, not me, right? But I still have a scar, <laughs> and if I press the scar on my thigh, I, it still hurts, right? If I press to this day, probably almost ten years ago, and so I use that analogy with what they're doing with social media and the stuff they're consuming. It's like stabbing your soul or your brain with a knife. Wow, right? it's leaving wow. a scar. And it's very quick to do the damage and it takes a long, long time to heal. And that's what I've experienced in my personal life, dealing with everything that I let into my mind and into my heart. It's I did damage really quick and I didn't realize that the healing takes a bit longer than than the damage does. So this is one of my prized possessions. What, that is way cooler than mine. Yeah, this makes me this uh, this is what I wanted when I was probably like 7 years old. Um but uh but it, it was worth the wait till I was 40 whenever someone yeah. gave it to me as a gift. Thank you for buying me this whoever bought me this. And I don't live in California. Um <laughs> not legal in California. Oh. <laughs> um Imagine the imagine the uh, you're, you're having a daughter. Imagine the one of the ways I raise my boys is I want my boys to be um, good mates. And imagine this cohort of young boys that's grown up like this now. And th that's the choice for girls out there. <laughs> yeah. It's a fucking it's a fucking disaster. Yeah. I have a kid who works for me. He's 17. His name's Ian. And he's like my only hope for his age group right now. Cause all his buddies and friends I've met, I'm like, <laughs> I don't even, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Just yeah. Yeah. Weird and awkward and shy and not mature and not tough. And like, just, I'm like, what is going on with men? You know? And if you start saying that and it's like, Oh, you're being a massage or whatever they say. And it's like, no, there's a real issue with like the man is trying, they're trying to kill the man, you know, and masculinity and all these things that men are supposed to be are kids are not growing up with because of all this medicating and what they're being fed on social media and all the sensitivity and stuff that's going on. It's you think that the cell phone is really, do you think it's one of the root causes of this? 
just people getting phones too early. I, I remember coming home from school and my mom not being there, and we had uh, encyclopedias, and then we had these two massive dictionaries, and I would look up bad words. Most of them weren't in there, right? But I would like look up like dick. It wasn't in there. I'd look up fuck. It wasn't in there. And then finally, I'd look up bitch, and it's in there, but it has a shitty definition. It's a female dog. Yeah. And I'm like this, or I look up fag and it's, it, it, it has Six. nothing to do with home. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is, but my, that's what my friends and I would do. We're in the eighth grade. We're 13. And you know, I, I've snuck them over to the house and we're looking at bad words. But if I would have had a phone, I would have put together some crazy words. Like, you know what I mean? I would have, I would have looked up just anything, fucking anything as an eighth grade boy. I think there'd be no end to my creativity. Right. And I think I don't so I don't think the cell phone is the root, right? The root is we have a nature to be drawn towards those types of things, towards things that are we want that stimulus, right? Yeah, yeah. And there is a rebellion nature in all of us that we will use these tools and get addicted to very quickly. So cell phone is just your encyclopedia exponentially you know made now they're made available to way 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 more so it's the same nature probably that you had or that i had as a kid but the tools now to feed that are just astronomically more advanced in in a negative way i mean i don't think that cell phones are evil is what i'm trying to say i think there's a nature in us that is drawn to evil and we use cell phones to to access all that and you can use them in a good way obviously i don't think people created them with the intention necessarily to to kill kids and make them depressed and suicidal and all that stuff obviously not but that's what they're being used for and evil will you take advantage of these tools knowing how accessible they can be to to kids i remember when i was a kid i'd go in a bookstore like barnes and noble where you could listen to cds and like test them out before you buy them. And I'd go try to find all the rap CDs with the bad lyrics like Eminem while my mom shopped for her books. And I'd be in there and hear, listen to Eminem just like cussing and stuff. I'd be like, yeah, you know, yeah. like 10 years old. Right. And so imagine that now it's like, now you have a phone, you have Spotify or Apple music and your parents have an account for free and you just, you just go on and listen whenever you want, whenever you want. And so, yeah, I would go to the library and find the playboy magazines. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's for me. It was an iPod Touch, and I'd go on Google Images and look up like boobies, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just save them all to my camera roll. I probably have still done that in the last ten years. Maybe (laughs) I don't want to like admit anything, but maybe I've done that. Right, but now you don't have to look for it. Now it's right. It's everywhere, and it's already there for you. And so kids are not even looking anymore. They're just wow. They're just seeing it, and then you know those habits start being formed. I have to tell you this story. We would um, go to the library. Uh, my friend, his name was Patrick and Andrew. And we were in the eighth grade and we would go to the library and we would they would have Playboy magazines there. And we would get the Playboy magazines and we would open up to, to the centerfold. And then when the librarian, uh, this is the public library, not the school library. And when the librarian librarian would get up from her, 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 her table, we would go set the centerfold wide open on her desk. And then go away like, you know, like 30 or 40 feet. And then when she would come back to her desk, she would see it. And then we would walk over and ask her like, so we like, we caught, like we were catching her looking at it. We would plant it on her desk. 
And then we would ask her a question like, we're, we're, we're looking for, uh, oh, what are you looking at, Miss So-and-so? She'd have like the name tag on and it would be, we those would be the crazy stunts we would do. <laughs> we were ahead of our time. If we would have had cell phones, then we would have filmed that shit. I highly recommend you do that to your local librarian kids with your cell phone. Hey, beautiful setup. I think kids are gonna kids are gonna do stuff like that, right? And they're yeah, they that nature and pull pranks and be funny and all that stuff. So, you know, I I think it's better that we make this content, have this meshing, and say, hey, okay, you're gonna do stuff like that sometimes, but I want you to be aware of what it can happen if you start getting into the, all that stuff in a negative way and all that. And so, we're not gonna keep. No one was gonna keep you from doing that. Right. But it'd be better if they told you at the time too, like, you know, all right, you're going to look at this, you're going to see this stuff and you might think it's funny or whatever, but here's the negative side of it. And just parents being very real, you know, about these kind of things that if, if they start treating them the wrong way, it could turn into something really negative and dark and unhealthy for them. So. I, I, I can't, I wish I could remember the name of this book, but there was this book um that this uh, author wrote she was a female i heard her being interviewed and she was talking about how she went into into the country somewhere and she met a guy and they had sex and the sex with this guy was so different than any other guy she'd ever had sex with and she was tripping on it and then uh, about a year into the relationship she realized the guy had never seen porn oh wow and because of that uh, and I, I can't even remember the characteristics of the intimacy that she detailed but how different it was Right. With a guy who had never seen porn versus and she came from New York City versus coming from an area where it was all her. The guy, those guys probably watch porn every single fucking day. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's that's the thing maybe that I'm hearing from you that most needs to be conveyed. These things will change you when you see them. Do you want do, do you want them to are you OK with them changing you? Right. Yeah, it's and you should not be okay. And but the, they don't know how it's going to change them. And so right. someone right. has to show them that and say, "Hey, because they're look you look at a naked woman on a screen, you're like, there's nothing wrong with this. This is right. great." You know, right. and it's like, "Well, let me show you. I'm 10 years ahead of you of of having done all that, and here's what I've dealt with now being in a marriage, right? And now I'm with someone solely for the rest of my life having to depart from my mental habits that were formed of what girl am i looking at today and having this sexual kind of moment with today and all of a sudden you go you start catching yourself looking at women walking down the street like oh i wonder if she'd be nice to you know whatever and all these thoughts that you start having and then you're like why am i thinking like that and it's like well because i just opened my eyes to woman after woman after woman after woman after woman on my screen in my alone time every single day and now here i am going to be a father of a daughter who's supposed to raise up a woman you know be married to a woman loyal to her and i'm fighting these old thought patterns of like ew i don't want to think like that you know um uh audrey uh kids cuss to their parents nowadays it's disgusting uh my kids cuss um they're and they're only six and eight it's disgusting it's one thing to say cuss words in front of them but even in 34 years i've said two cuss words in front of my dad it's called respect uh my kid said 300 cuss words in front of me um uh yesterday but but i will tell you this well i don't have to defend 
but, but maybe we'll come back to that in a second. If you think cuss words are the – if you can get a kid to make eye contact and say hi to every adult and shake their hand, and well, I will get into that. I think that there's a – I think there's nuances um wad zombie the chat wants to know is dominic uh religious um uh D- dominic you are religious right is it the painting um i don't use that word <laughs> religious okay religious to me sounds like rules are you a follower of christ are you are you christian i love jesus yeah love i do jesus. and honestly <clears throat> that's kind of what's helped me get through all of that garbage that I put into my mind for years and years. I grew up in a rough family situation. Um, my mom was addicted to alcohol. I've had five or so stepdads. We moved around a lot and I just went through a lot of crap. And five stepdads, you said? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of divorce, a lot of drug abuse and stuff, alcohol abuse I witnessed, verbal abuse and all sorts of things. And um, my mom did one good thing. She did many good things, but one good thing that she did was she decided to take me to church when I was nine years old, and I started being fed things that really helped me, things that didn't make me feel like alone and afraid and negative and dark, and um, that really, I feel like, kept me grounded and solid throughout my childhood and everything that we went through. I departed from that when I started looking at all this stuff. Right. And getting into my own ways and living on my own. And for years, I dealt with addiction. I dealt with temptation. I dealt with anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts and panic and all sorts of things. And I didn't realize that was a result of me having departed from what was keeping me grounded and going into all this garbage and stuff that I was consuming. So that's kind of part of my my story. Only in recent years have I kind of fixed my my relationship with God and I very much credit that to where I am today and and me being able to do this work. And so am I a, a religious no. You know what I mean? I don't I don't look at it that way. I have a, a a relationship with God that has absolutely changed my life. And, and that's that. What was there something that um this this reconnecting with Jesus was there a moment uh, that that it happened? Is is there a story that there's a day, a moment in time where you reconnected? Yeah, so I was living in L.A. and I was living a real cool life. You know, I had a three story loft in L.A. I was driving the Mustang I always wanted. I was working with celebrities and influencers, and and I was doing my thing, but I was absolutely miserable. I lived alone. I was alone. I was having panic attacks all the time. I was trying to self-medicate, like I was talking about with the nicotine and all that stuff, and just nothing was working. I got very desperate. And there was one instance where one night my friends had come over and we were playing basketball, and it was like a totally fine night. And my heart just started racing like crazy, and I just started getting like overwhelming thoughts come upon me. I'm sure a lot of people watching have had this experience where like you just randomly, it's like having a hard time trying to get a grip on your mind and just thoughts are coming in. So I just got this panic. And I went to a full panic attack for like two or three hours. My friends were like, I really thought I was going to die. I mean, I, my friends were like sitting there like, 
grabbing me like, dude, it's okay. It's okay for two or three hours. Finally calm down. And in that moment, I think when you think you're going to die in your face with death, many people will in that instance cry out to God. And it takes reaching that point for someone to go, oh my gosh, I might leave my body right now. Where am I going? God help me. Right. And so I had to get to that point where I was like, oh no, God, God, please, God, God. And then so I've calmed down. Right. And so I got to that point where I was like, oh my gosh, if I had died right then, what am I doing? I have all this stuff. I have money. I'm working with these people, but like, what does it all mean? Why? I don't have peace in my life. I don't have joy. And it just really put a mirror in front of my face of like, what am I turning into? And um, I just had a desire after that to get right with God again, because I remembered that peace and that joy that I had as a kid when my mom took me to church and I, I had a relationship with Jesus. And so I called my grandparents, who were pretty much the only Christian people that I knew um, presently at that time. And I said, hey, I want to go to a church here in L.A. Will you guys meet me? And they drove almost an hour from where they live to go to this little church that was being held in elementary school with me. And I sat in the back row and they played the worship music and they were singing. And I was standing there all tough because I was all L.A. cool guy. And I just broke and tears started coming down my face. And I felt that presence of God again that I knew when I was a kid. And I knew that was going to be all right. But I knew I had some some work to do to get back on the right track. And so living in L.A., I started going to church again, one foot in the world, one foot walking with God, trying to break all these old lifestyle patterns that I had created. And he was very patient with me, led me to Idaho Again, going back to the values of why I moved here, came out here with my wife and we just said, hey, are we just going to live halfway in? Or are we going to really try this thing out? And I said, no, I want to know if Jesus is legit. I want to know if this Christian walk is real and, and what it'll do for my life. And since then, our life has been a living testimony of exactly that. We've, we've followed the, the Lord, <laughs> you know, which sounds religious to some people, but all it is is just walking with him, being led by him, being in prayer. Right. And just having a relationship with God. And we've been so blessed as a result. Addictions have fallen off. Anxiety has fallen off. Depression has fallen off. We love people more. We, we want to serve and give to people more. We have more joy and love in our relationship. We fight less. And it's a totally as, as a result of who I've learned about Jesus and the relationship I have with him. There's nothing religious about it. So how, how many years ago that when I went to church that day was four, about four years ago. And it, I'd say it took me two to get to the point where I was kind of felt like I was living a double life. And I was like, all right, am I really going to see if this is real or not? Because a lot of people will go to church, religious, right? I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll say a prayer over my food. You're not experiencing God. You know, you're not going to experience the heart change, right? And his love and these things that are very real until you actually go in and say, all right, I'm going to try this your way. Here's this Bible that we have. It's the oldest book in all of the world, right? And it's, I'm going to see if this actually works. So let me try this out, you know, and then say, you know, it took me two or three years to actually commit to doing that. And, and as a result, we've been very blessed. So Matt Burns says there are no atheists in foxholes. When that? when I saw when I saw your movie last night, and I was looking at your Instagram account, 
let me let me go back a second. I'm going to say something. Uh, L.A. is not a good place. <laughs> that, should be the, that should be the opening line of a book. Los Angeles is a trippy place, and the vast majority of people I know who grew up there, even the most realist and kindest of them, have a veneer on them that I don't think that they know that they have on them. It is fucking weird. And I thought for sure when you came on the show today that you were going to have that veneer. And I have not seen it once. It's crazy. Even those I've heard this same talk from other people from L.A. that I'm hearing from you about. But but uh, um, but man, like like you're doing it. I sense no um, L.A. veneer on you. I don't know how you were able to wash it off. But there is this. It's not all the people there, of course. It's not all the people there. Um, but a ton of them, especially in your line of work, have a veneer on them that is for me intolerable yeah completely fucking intolerable it's it, it it's um i wish i knew i wish i could describe it without being so negative but because i i, oh, I want to use the word it's just this douchebag thing but i i have a, i have a good friend down there now in orange county and they basically told me that everyone in la is a liar and that they just accept it like everyone will just lie to you about their accolades what they do and uh, and I and I almost feel it. It's it's weird. It's a it's a trippy place. I was living a fake life. I want to correct something I said. I think I said the Bible's the oldest book. I don't know if that's true. It's the most reproduced book we have from the old ages. I think it's we have the most translations of that book. It's the most vetted book that we have historically. Wow. So I wanted to correct that. If I said something incorrect, I wanted to make that clear. Um, as far as living in L.A. That's exactly what I was feeling. I think that's a result of why I had the anxiety and stuff I did is because the person I was outside was a lot different than who I was inside. And I was, you could imagine living these two personalities and they're just pulling and it creates this tension. And so here's what people know me as and what I want them to think I am. And here's what I know I'm actually, I actually am right now. And that's over time living there. I feel like those two go farther and farther apart. Because you want people to think you're so much cooler, so much better becomes an addiction. And then in the in inside, you're just like becoming weaker and weaker, realizing that you're living a lie. And that tension is what I describe as that anxiety and panic that I had where you just you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. It's like actual tension in my chest that I was living with for years. And I had to get out. I had to break it off. It was disgusting. Some people live comfortably in that way. I don't know how they do it. I yeah. Well, I, I think maybe ignorance is bliss too. I think ignorance is bliss too. Some people think that they actually are that thing, right? They don't even know that they're – I think some of those people don't even know that they put on a veneer, hmm. right? They just completely lost themselves. Yeah. Um, how, how, did you, how did you meet your wife? So here's an, a God story because – uh, there are no coincidences like this. So I was shooting a video for Platinum Motorsport, which is in L.A., um, and they had an event with Floyd Mayweather. It was their L.A. is all fake it till you make it. Yeah, it, it is. That's a great description, David. Yeah, that's what my friends tell me down there tell me. Yeah. So I was shooting this video for this red carpet event, right? And I was like seeing celebrities left and right. And I'm speaking of veneer, you know, I was trying to act all like whatever cool at this event. 
So I'm on this red carpet. All these people are coming in and coming in. And I see this beautiful woman. You could look her up on Instagram if you want. If Joe wants to pull her up, Samara Tierno. S-A-M-A-R-A. Oh, yeah, she is hot. I, I look her up. <laughs> oh, She's... So I, I put her... So I see her on the on the side of this red carpet. There's this girl, all these celebrities coming in. And here's this girl like standing on her phone looking around like by herself. And I'm like, what is she doing? Is she lost? Like, does she need help? But I'm working. So I'm like, okay, I can't go up and talk to this girl, but I want to make sure she's okay. Anyway, there's a breaking point where my friend pulls up to this red carpet. He's in a car, obviously, with two other people. One is this really tall African-American guy. And the other one is Neo, the art, the music artist. So they hop out. Here's my friend. I'm like, what's up, bro? And I turn. I'm like, Neo? Right? And then here's the girl I was just staring at for an hour at the red carpet, hugging this very tall African-American man. And I'm like, crap, that's her boyfriend. I can't talk to her because I don't want to fight that guy. You know what I mean? And so, <laughs> and so we go into this event. I'm filming and like trying to go back, talk to my friend. Still like mesmerized by her, going back, filming, talking to her, talking to Neo. And then we hang out for like four to six hours and I never introduced myself whatsoever. I, I think I maybe had got her name from my friend, but I didn't get her Instagram, didn't get her number. I thought she was dating this guy. Turns out she wasn't. I didn't know that. That was just a friend that she had met. That was her first night in LA. That's why she was on her phone looking around. She had no idea where she was. It was the only person he knew she knew, and he had said, Hey. If you want to come to this event tonight, come check it out, whatever. So she went. Where was she from? Where, where First night in LA, where was she from? She is from, my wife was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Okay. I'm sorry. Hood. Yeah. Her parents are, she's first generation. Her parents are from Brazil. So my wife's Brazilian. Oh, well, that's good. That balances it out. New Jersey. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So two weeks go by. I'm still thinking about her. I'm like, come on. Give me another wow. chance. I need another chance. Right. I'm hanging out with this other girl who has a boyfriend. I was friends with the couple and she's like, Dom, we need to get you set up, which people have said, you know, before. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. She's like, no, 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 no. I know this girl. She's new to LA. You guys would be perfect for each other. You have no idea. And I'm like, all right, whatever. People say that. I'm like, what does she look like? You know? So she pulls up her Instagram, shows me the phone and I go, Oh my God. Dude, LA is not small for people who don't know. That does Millions not happen in Los LA. Angeles. Yeah. It had nothing to do with the event that we were at whatsoever. Totally like 30 minutes away, millions of people in LA. And she goes, Here's the one for you. And I look at the phone and I go, Oh my gosh, we gotta call her right now. This is crazy. <laughs> She's gonna flip out. So like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. You guys are gonna be married. You know what I mean? Isn't that? And she's like calling her FaceTime. I'm like, you're on FaceTime. I need to talk to her now. And I got all this confidence, like, this is meant to be. You know, and so she gets her on FaceTime, says, Samara, you won't believe who I'm with right now. And then, and then I'm like getting ready, you know, and, and she turns the phone. She's like, and I'm like, hey, what's up? And, she, and Samara just goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's me from the party. We were at Platinum Motorsport. And then we went to that club after and we were Neo and blah, blah, blah. And she's like. And I'm like, no, you have to remember. She had no idea where she was. She didn't know that was Neo. It was her first night in LA. She had no idea what we did that night. Whatsoever. She had no idea where we were. So she's not remembering. And I clearly didn't make much of an impression. You know, I'm okay. She didn't remember you at all? She didn't remember the camera guy? 
Now she remembers. She remembers oh, she's lying. Yeah. She's oh, lying. We get no yeah. love. The camera guys get no love. You're not lying. Come on. We're married now. You better not be lying. This is the foundation of our relationship. No, no. What kind of camera did you have? I had a Sony A7S II. It was on yeah. a gimbal. Yeah, yeah, girl. She remember, She saw you then. She saw you then. <laughs> she remembers the blackjacks. She remember. She remembered, but at first, she it was just me. It was dark. I'm like on the Facetime, this guy saying, "Remember me?" You know, she she had no idea like who I was. At that By point. the way, I saw your LA side when you did that. What? When you did that, that's the first time I seen it. When you, hey girl, yeah, like yeah, I saw it, I saw it. That was good. You still got, you still got it if you need yeah, it. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, that was crazy. It was two weeks later. We were on the Facetime, and then turns out she was totally friends with it. It was like the only other people she had met in between that period of time. And so, I was just like, well, this has to be something because someone statistic, who knows? Please calculate what that is. It's got to be one in millions, millions odds of that happening. And so it took a while for us to actually go on a date. She was a model traveling. And so she had left LA, come to LA, left LA. And like I said, we were living different lifestyles at that point. She was going to clubs. I was going to parties and all this stuff. So it took a while. And actually- Was that before the anxiety attack that you met her or after? No, no. That night on the carpet, was that- that's before anxiety attack? No, that was after. After, okay. It was okay. after. That was after I'd gone back to church. That happened. And we did not start dating until she came back to LA one time after being gone for what, babe, six months? A year. She'd been gone from LA for almost a year and came back to LA. And that night we re-met again at Mosaic, which is a church in Hollywood at church that night. I the day that. she came back, you you made arrangements to see her. No, I didn't make arrangements. I went to church. She came back to LA asking her friends where I was. We oh, shit. We talked at that point. That's a good sign. She came out to LA, where's Dom? Is he going to church? And so I went to church. She went to Mosaic, same church that night. I walk into church, had no idea she was back. And I just hear, Dom. And I look and turn to her. And she's like, and she had never looked at me like that before. I was like, because we barely, like that cool thing had happened, but we had barely talked or anything. And so she described. Were you that, tracking her that whole year though, through social media? <laughs> yeah. Like, were you like making sure like keeping no. tabs on her? What's funny is I wasn't because after that had happened, you know, that amazing thing happened. And then we're on FaceTime and she didn't really remember who I was. And then nothing really happened after that point. I kind of got discouraged and I was like, right, like you contracted back. Or I was like, maybe this wasn't what I thought it was. That was going on. But while she was gone traveling, people would DM me. One kid from Brazil, actually, who followed her, sent her profile to me and said, hey, you should date her. And I'm like, again, oh, no people. shit, I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, thanks, Captain Obvious. You know, it's like, so they're sending me her profile. And I'm like, what is going on with this girl? And anyway, so it wasn't until we went church that night and then we reconnect and from there it's just i say that's god's timing it was the right time for us to start our relationship and it was just from there we got married what a year and seven months later so yeah um it's it, it, you seem like a very brave man dude the uh, i know documentary filmmaking is a shit ton of work um, you've saved a ton of people's lives. You have your, you, in my opinion, you're going down the right path by giving all your shit away free. 
Um, because we, we, those of us that do that end up getting rewarded handsomely and you shouldn't do it for that reason. Absolutely not. But the world is a, um, the world's a magical place. And I think that, uh, when you help others, the world will conspire to help you. I, I don't think that I know that. And, and it seems like you've landed on that, on that pathway. And it sounds like you found your North star through Jesus. Yeah, I mean, well, it's a very biblical worldview that you just or view that you just said, and which is sowing and reaping, which is basically the world. Oh, sowing and reaping. Yeah. The world says I need to take right, and I'm going to store up for myself, and I need to get mine. So I'm going to get make the films that pay me the most money. I could have went and made music videos or porn or whatever. You know what I mean? And OnlyFans. Can you imagine the temptation there was to start doing that when I was in LA, being being able to film and stuff. Anyway, and, and the Bible says, no, we're going to give and we're going to sow in and then we're going to reap as a result of that. And so I do believe the success we've had doing this has been a result of us saying, no, we're, we're going to give this and we're going to do it for the right reason and not selfishly. And we've totally been blessed as a result. So, yeah, that's how it works. And I think it's universal. You don't have to believe in Jesus right now for that to work for you. I think God will prove himself to you and that his way works um, before you make that decision. I think. Yeah. Like I'm totally, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm totally open to it. Come get me. That's great. You know, uh, cut that clip, Eight, uh, cut that clip. One thirty six. send that to God. Tell him to send his son down and get me. Uh, Dominic, I, you, uh, what a pleasure to meet you. I, I, uh, I should have known Jorge Ventura would not have sent me uh, a chump. What you are a fucking class act, dude. And um, you have my phone number. I'd love to stay in touch with you. I don't sleep by my phone. You can text me 24 hours a day. Um, you, uh, I would love. You didn't give me your phone number. You're one of those weirdos that does everything by email. I'd like to have your phone number. I'd like to be friends with you. Text we, text, we texted. Oh, we did. Oh, you know what? I think Sousa, the executive producer, left me off that text. He he called. He called. We were. We did text. We did text. Or else I would have texted this morning because yesterday he said, oh, I left you off the communications. That's the first time I've done that in 700 shows or something. Well, then were they texting as you? Because we texted and you're like. No, then I did text and I'm just a right. horrible rememberer. Okay, so you're not a weirdo. I'm just he's, an old man with a bad no. memory. He's really bad. <laughs> uh, uh, please stay in touch. If there's anything I can ever do to help uh, promote, draw point light at any of the projects you're working on, um, you're always Whenever welcome. Whenever comes out, yeah, for sure. Uh, you're always welcome on the show. Um, I'm uh, Idaho is a place that, in the back of my mind, is a place that I would like to maybe move someday. And so you have been a, a good role model and example for me that you, you you weren't scared and you packed up and hit the road. By the way, your house is beautiful. I saw it on Instagram. Thank you so much. Yeah. Come visit. I'd love to, man, it'd be so cool to meet you and just show you how things are out here. It'd be, what, it'd be really fun. Thank you. What camera are you using now? For this? Just what's your go-to camera now? Like if, like it, for, for your, because you said the Sony a seven two and that oh. was a few years ago. And I, and I'm a huge, um, a seven S three guy. Like I just like, I'm it just giddy every time I see Wait, it can you give me the box? sitting there. Another God thing. I just found this guy mm -hmm. on Craigslist. He's a film teacher for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And he was selling this. 
Uh oh. <laughs> oh no. Nerdy side, right? Yeah, now. I love the nerdy side. They pointed that point the screen up. Look at that. Oh, uh, uh, what is it? This. So it's a Lumix S5. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Right? Yeah. But we converted all of these vintage Canon lenses. Oh, my goodness. To adapt to the S5. So these are from like the 80s and stuff, right? They're Canon FD lenses. They look like a Leica when you shoot through them. And so yeah. I have this 4K camera, which the other camera I use is a Blackmagic. It shoots Blackmagic for all the 6K Pro. So right. this, when you hook the Blackmagic video assist up to it, the recorder, you yeah. can shoot Blackmagic 6K from this camera with vintage Canon film lenses, like cine lenses on it. And it just looks so amazing. It's beautiful. You should, if you're a camera guy, oh my gosh. I'm, I'm a camera nerd. And by the way, uh, when someone uh, talks about they know the relationship between can uh, Panasonic and Leica, then you know they're a dork. A camera dork because Panasonic did buy Leica just a couple of years ago, and the Leica lenses have something so freaking special about them. I'm a dweeb man. With yeah, that I do want a Leica though. You're 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 a dweeb with a hot wife and a cool family and a great story. So give you a pass and a good God. Who yes, and a, and a good much. God. Um, uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks for coming on. Uh, the movies are. Uh, please go watch them now on YouTube. That you will not be disappointed. You guys know I will never send you somewhere. If I thought they were shit, I would not tell you this. Dead on Arrival and Knox's story. You will be very happy you watch them. They will change your life for the better. They're both in the description now. Oh, good. All right, brother. Uh, please stay in touch. I'll do the same. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This was yeah. awesome. Ops absolutely. All right. Be blessed, Ciao. guys. And the buzzing is gone. Damn, I had such low expectations for him. I had so, so low expectations for him. Now look at you. You liked it. My goodness. Yeah, he's cool as shit. I loved it that he opened that camera case on his chest. That's like... Such a <laughs> like, Oh, my God. And by the way, the, the knife does have a, um, this knife doesn't have a safety. It, ha it has a case. You have to keep it in this black case because if this thing fires off in your pocket, you're toast. You're toast. To sever your whole leg up for that thing. Dude. God, he's cool. God. I don't mean yeah, there are many cool. people who I think they're that cool. He's cool. I'm going to have to go watch those movies. Brace yourself, dude. Hey, put that on in the chow hall, dead on arrival. Oh, People will be fucked up. <laughs> it's a I diet film. It'll stop you from it. eating. Um, uh, yeah, I love how God uses Sevon to spread the gospel through the show. I know it's crazy, right? What's he doing? I that's why I think I think like I just get scraped up at the last minute. I think like Everyone gets saved and at the last minute, like when I think it's over and I'm going to be stuck here on earth with, with fucking all, what, what do you guys call him? Satan and all those dudes. He's going to pick me up by the neck and be like, good job, son. And I'll be like, what the fuck? Why'd you wait so long? Just playing a little joke on you. Yeah. And that's why I do CrossFit. By the way, one time, one time I went to, um, uh, um, I went to a gym and, oh shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh shit, the van needs gas. I have to take the kids' skateboard. I want to tell you this quick story real quick. I went to Los Angeles uh, with Greg and 
I think Dave was there and uh, Miranda Alcarez from uh, the founder of uh, street parking. And we went down there and there was a guy there who needed a one-on-one training at this CrossFit box. And Miranda, I think was his coach and it was Neo. I had no idea who he was, but he pulled up in a rolled like all crazy Rolls Royce and, um, and he got out of the car and then him and Miranda became good friends. And Miranda can rap. For those of you who don't know, Miranda Alcaraz can like really rap. Like, like, like she's a rapper. And it was it was pretty cool to see uh watch her and um Neo hit it off. So um Jeremy E World Sevon, we are all vessels, Sevon, being used for the greater good if we allow it. Well, thank you. That's what I'm trying to do. All right, I'm gonna go put uh I'm going to go put gas in my van. Oh, God, I'm so humble to say that. And uh, for me, that's really humbling for me to say that, to tell you guys that I'm actually going to get out and swipe my own credit card and touch the actual pump. Wow. Somebody doesn't pump it for you. I know. It's, it's a sad day. And uh, then I'm going to go to the skate park. And uh, I'll probably call Matt Souza and be like, how come more show? Oh, I scheduled the show with Brian Friend, by the way. So okay. you don't have to you, you don't have to um, do that one. And that show is going to be nuts, guys. That all things CrossFit show. Boy, we got some crazy shit. Good shit to tell you. God, I have so many exciting things to tell you guys that I'm like just sitting on because I need a, multiple sources. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I love my I love my Sienna. I've all, I, all, I always wanted a van since I was a little kid. I wanted like the A-Team van. And then um, and then uh, I always wanted a Sienna. And uh, then finally, once I had three kids, my wife's like, go ahead. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think it's the only new car I've ever bought. What a treat. Have you ever bought a new car, Caleb? No, I've always bought used. Yeah. Um, no, no. The Brian show I don't think is today. Is that today? No, I don't no, think so. No, I don't think there is a show tonight. Mm-mm. Okay. All right, guys. I will see you guys uh, tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. I think we have two shows tomorrow, 7 and 9 a.m. Do we? Correct. Uh, we have uh, Lauren Connor. Uh, it's our CrossFit affiliate series show. Oh, and then Brian at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Yeah, that show is going to be off the hook. I'm also trying to do a show maybe – I forget what Sousa said, but maybe there's going to be three shows tomorrow. There will be a show tomorrow night also. All right. Um, cool. Bye. Bye, Jessica. See you guys later. Wad Zombie, thanks for the money. And we'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.